Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. Amen. Well, I'm typically going through more verses than one, but today we're going through one verse and I'm doing a two-part series on one verse because this verse is an important verse in the New Testament. Pray for me as I preach because my throat this week has been uh, struggling through some sickness and I'm asking the Lord's favor on it as I continue to get through this. Chapter 8, what an incredible, incredible New Testament chapter. It's primarily focused on the truth that although we are spiritually saved, although we are alive and free from the condemning power of sin through faith in Christ. That's the first verse, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's where we started. That's the opening verse of chapter 8. And although we have this state of no condemnation, we still experience physical death, suffering, persecution, trials, tragedy, the consequences of the curse of the fall. But in verse 18, Paul emphasized that the sufferings we endure in this present time cannot be compared to the glory that awaits for us in the future. Then Paul acknowledged that due to the curse, our bodies, they groan. The creation groans. We groan in this weight that we have for the restoration of all things. Yet we do not groan in sorrow and despair. We grow, we groan with hopeful expectation. We are trusting in the promises of redemption. And even in our weakness, when we don't know how to pray, last week we learned that the Holy Spirit comes in our weakness and helps us pray, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But not only does the Holy Spirit go in there and actually join us in prayer, magnifying our prayers. He actually takes our prayers, takes our groanings, the inaudible, suffering prayers. I'm sure all of you have been there that have any age under their belt, have had a prayer that is more like groaning than it is like speaking. And we learn that the Holy Spirit takes those prayers and conveys the inaudible truths to the Father. So that although we are unclear, They are clear requests to God. Ultimately, that taught us that everything in this life, everything in the Christian life holds value to God. Even our smallest groans and sorrows, which can seem insignificant in the vastness of the universe, they actually find value and are heard by the Father. I think of Psalm 56, 8 through 9, that says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, This I know, that God is for me. And this is the overarching theme thus far, that Christians are not left alone in our suffering. Between uh, having the assurance of no condemnation for our sins in Christ, uh, between uh, the promise of future glory and the resurrected uh, future state of our bodies and the eternal world, uh, the reality of having a living hope in trials, uh, the great gift of the, of the Spirit of God's help in our weakness that communicates the deepest prayers of our heart with groanings too deep for words is conveyed to the Father. 
Between all these things, there are essentially graces that believers have an arsenal of divine resources that were not left in our trials without help. And today, we see that there is more. There is a further dimension of grace that'll bring you, as a Christian, ultimate comfort and consolation. We learn that our God, like a master conductor over an orchestra, is coordinating all things in our lives, from our sin and our suffering, from our, our trials and tragedy, from our, uh, our obedience and sanctification. All of these are being orchestrated in a way that brings about our good and God's glory. This should bring great comfort to you if you've stumbled or failed or have made mistakes or have been broken. R.C. Sproul's son, R.C. Sproul Jr., many years ago, he received a DUI, bringing great shame to his family and to his father. He repented. He's a fruitful and faithful man going forward. Uh, but he wrote recently that his wife passed along a quote, and it said, If you think you've blown God's plan for your life, rest in this. You, my friend, are not that powerful, end quote. And that is the substance of this passage today. It's to show you the extent of God's sovereign will in your life. It's to show you that even your failures cannot ruin God's plan for your life. As Christians, uh, it can seem that our lives are disordered and chaotic. I don't know how many times I've sat there going, Lord, what? Why this? But this verse, as we're going to see today, highlights the love of God through his ultimate control of your life. Now, we don't like that idea of having ultimate control of our life, but we're going to discuss this and learn that it is a great verse of peace. As the Apostle Paul knows, He's a master of anticipation. If you've read anything by Paul, he is constantly anticipating the resistance, the misunderstandings, uh, the lack of clarity that might be perceived by his recipients to his writings. He's constantly anticipating these. And as we discussed last week, it might have seemed that the Roman Christians, uh, in their suffering, felt like they were alone and that their groanings were too deep for words. We found out that those are conveyed to the Father. But as we saw, the apostle reassured them that even those inaudible groans, they're actually clearly made uh, of the substance of those groans are, are made clear to the Father. Now, the natural response, the natural response to that reality is that if the Father hears my groanings, why doesn't he take away their cause? If the Father hears because the Spirit conveys the deep parts of my suffering to the Father, why does He not rescue me from these trials? And if you have not asked that question, you're just not old enough, because it is an absolute reality in the Christian life. Why, Lord? If you hear my prayers, why have you not taken the suffering from me? And to this, the apostle writes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, 
to those who are called according to his purpose. In our desire to escape pain, uh, we struggle to see its value. We cannot grasp how a web of sufferings can somehow bring about our good. Uh, For a season, uh, Veronica was into weaving and she would uh, have this loom and she was putting together this basically a tapestry on the front side of the tapestry, it's really beautiful. You, you can see the patterns. You can see the intention. On the back side of the tapestry, it's all of the raw yarn and the tying of the knots. And, and it looks nothing like the front. And I often think that sometimes our trials are viewed that way from our perspective. We see the back of the tapestry. We don't see the other side that God is building this beautiful, weaving this beautiful story together. All we see is the back, the yarn, the tangles, and it doesn't make sense to us. Now, theologically speaking, uh, we are touching on two closely related doctrines. Now, we are going to be smart Bible people here, right? We're going to know doctrine and theology because we don't want to be 10 years into the Christian faith and still be babies in interpreting Scripture. Unfortunately, that is most of America. Theologically speaking, we are touching on two closely related doctrines, the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. Now, the sovereignty of God deals with the authority of God that he has the rights to rule the creation as he wills. The providence of God is dealing with the same reality, but it's showing his provision, how he creates and sustains his children, his creation. And as you're going to see over the next several weeks, sovereignty and providence are wonderful gifts to the Christian. Wonderful gifts. To know that you're not in ultimate control of your destiny, but to know that your life and your soul rests in the hands of the Almighty should bring you peace. To know that your mistakes are not going to be wasted. To know that your pain is not going to be wasted. To know that your suffering is not going to be wasted. Ultimately, understanding that every aspect of your life has been orchestrated by divine providence that's going to benefit you it should offer you assurance and hope. So I want to look at this first part of this verse together. And I want to break it open. Imagine like a geode. You break it open and I want to just spend time looking at the absolute beauty and magnificence of the truths in this verse. And this is why we're going to take a few weeks just to get through this one statement. In verse 28, it says, and we know, and we know. He speaks to this promise as if it's some sort of presumption. We know it already. Personally, I can relate. I think you can relate too, because when I look at my life, when I look at my sufferings, when I look at five years of chronic illness that I have been going through, when I look at my ministry, I can see that what should have resulted in a net negative has somehow resulted in a net positive. What should have put me into bondage has somehow set me into freedom. What should have crushed my soul and led me to hopelessness and despair has somehow led me to joy and sanctification. Anyone who is a born-again believer can review their life and agree with this claim of this passage. 
we know that God causes all things to work together for our good. Just for a moment, just look at your life. Not through the carnal metrics of success and uh, materialism, but the lens of sanctification, just for a moment. Has God not orchestrated your life in a manner that has resulted in your spiritual good? Have you not borne the fruit of the Spirit of God in greater degree? Are you not reaping a greater harvest of humility and peace? If not, if you say no to those conclusions, the only explanation for that reality is that you are either blind or not saved. No saved individual can reflect on their life with sobriety, with spiritual reality, and claim that they are in a worse condition for now choosing to follow Christ. God is working all things together for your good. Do you know it? Is it evident? The scriptures claim that you know this, but then Paul affirms this truth with a titanic statement. He says, God causes all things to work together for good. Now, most Christians will affirm the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I I actually don't know any Christian that says, oh yeah, God is not sovereign. But they do not, in many cases, allow that doctrine to reach its logical conclusion. That is that they permit the idea in theory. Pay attention, folks, because some of you are here. They permit the idea of the sovereignty of God in theory, but they deny it in action. And the reason they deny God's sovereignty in action is because of two reasons. Number one, first, many Christians have bought into the unbiblical idea of humans having a free will. Okay, we're going to talk about free will today. Second, most Christians do not have the theological glossary to distinguish and recognize the difference between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They don't know how to reconcile those two realities. Now, before I deal with these two matters, I'm going to read some scripture that is going to just give you a brief idea of the degree of sovereignty that the Bible talks about. If you want to get upset, you're upset with the Bible, not me. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that have not yet been done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken to it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. The extent of the sovereignty goes to birds of prey. Just making sure you caught that. Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be prevented. Proverbs 19.21. 
Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Ephesians 1, 1, or 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Matthew 10, 29 through 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's will. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Last verse, Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. I'll actually give one more. It's printed on the front of my Bible. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is just a small sample of literally hundreds of verses that support the providence and the sovereignty of God. So let's get into these two issues. The two issues that prevent people from submitting to the reality, to the extent of this doctrine. You've often heard me say, we have a will, but it's never free. It's either enslaved to sin or it's enslaved to Christ. You have a will, but it's never free. Now the will is best defined as our highest desire. That is your will. It is your highest desire. And outside of Christ, when your soul is dead and separated from God and your flesh, your carnality dominates your affections, you do what you, your body wants to do. Your highest desire is for sin and it's for self. Romans 6.6 6 speaks to our slavery of sin. It says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. End quote. Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 3 offers us a biography of who you are prior to coming to Christ. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Pre-Christ, I don't care if you were six or 65, that is your biography. In Matthew 7, 17 through 19, Jesus speaks to the connection between our nature and our behavior. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Ultimately, he's teaching that behavior follows nature, 
fruit follows root. Make sense? In fact, I'm going to just take a second to talk about something. Even a person's good works, follow me here, even a person's good works, which may appear as good for those of us who can only see the outside, we can only see the exterior of a person, they may appear good, are not actually good unless they come from a good nature. Jesus saw this in the Pharisees over and over again. That is, in order for our works to qualify as good fruit, they must come from good roots. For that reason, the humanitarian that gives to the poor, from the outside, it looks moral. It's like the Pharisee. You're a whitewashed tomb. The outside is beautiful, but the inside is full of dead bones. But for the humanitarian that gives to the poor, but rejects Christ in the heart, what may look good from the outside is not good on the inside. Because it's not being done for the glory of Christ, it's being done for the glory of self. Which is exactly why Isaiah 46, 6 says, and all of our good works are like filthy rags to God. What does Hebrews say? Without faith, you cannot please God. If something's not done in faith, it is not pleasing to God, no matter how moral it may be. Now, when a person is born again, when a person is made new, they've turned away from the sinfulness of their life. They've recognized that they are not good. They've recognized that on judgment day, if they stood before God, they would be measured against the law of God and they would come short. When they realize this, when they recognize that they must trust on the righteousness of Christ that is given to them by faith, when they are truly regenerate, when they're not trusting in their own behavior, but trusting in the perfect obedience of Christ, when their roots have changed, when they've been made new, when their affections are no longer dominated, their highest desire is no longer for sin and Satan and for satanic realities, but their highest desire is now for Christ and righteousness. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Amen? Ultimately, man is only free to operate according to his nature. You need to hear this. Man is only free to operate according to his nature. He, you, are enslaved to your nature. If your nature is in Christ, then you are enslaved to Christ. If your nature is in the flesh, you are enslaved to the flesh. But what you are not free to do, please listen here, what you are not free to do is to change your nature. You cannot change your nature without God doing it for you. In the same way that you cannot born yourself again, you cannot change your nature. This is where man's free agency, which we will discuss in a little bit, and God's sovereignty break different ways. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you who do, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't change yourself. 
that word accustomed in the Hebrew is actually the same word that we use for disciple. You could even say, who are disciples of evil. The changing of our nature is a divine work. To go from being spiritually dead and our highest desire to being self and to go now becoming spiritually alive and our highest desire is Christ, it's not a work of human will. It is a work of divine will. This is very important. We often think that the way salvation works is I, of my own free will, am persuaded to change my nature and have repentance and then have faith and then born myself again. It is completely opposite in the Bible. Jesus even says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Okay, the biblical reality is this. You're born again first by God's sovereign will. He goes around as the proclamation of the gospel is happening and the Holy Spirit, like the wind, who cannot be controlled or directed, is like the midwife to the new birth, giving people ears to hear and eyes to see. And as the gospel comes, the sheep hear. Goats are not turning into sheep. No sheep here. The sheep hear the gospel for the first time. And the very things that they loved yesterday are now things that they hate today. Their entire constitution changes. They're born again. They're given faith. They're granted repentance. And they're made new. That's the biblical narrative. And therefore, you get to say, all glory be to Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God lest anyone should boast. It's not just the grace that's a gift. It's not just the faith that's a gift. Even though that Jesus is the founder and finisher of your faith, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. It's that you're saved by grace through faith. All of it is a gift that you're not involved in, which makes it grace. You can't call something grace when you chose it. That diminishes the reality But when you realize that you can't actually do something that you need to do, that God actually has to do it for you, that changes the appreciation of your own salvation. John 1, 12 through 13. In speaking to those who came to Christ, the apostle writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, pay attention, not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You weren't born because you were persuaded. You were born because God allowed you to hear what many cannot hear. He allowed you to see what many cannot see. Do you know that people didn't hear the gospel when Jesus proclaimed it? Do you know how many people rejected the gospel from the man who could preach the most clear gospel? It's not about intellectual persuasion. Romans 9.16, in speaking to whom God saves, the apostle writes, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Are you going to submit to the reality of these passages? I've often 
told people, imagine you stand before the Lord and the Lord says, why are you here? Well, because I trusted in the righteousness of Christ and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for my sins. And the father says, amen. But why are you here? And your brother John is not. He heard the gospel. Well, because I believed and he didn't. Well, why did you believe and he didn't? No matter what you do in that question, you will get to a boast. Well, because I was smarter, because I was wiser, because I was more spiritually sensitive, because I was more aware of the need, no matter what you do, you end up in a situation where you give yourself a little bit of credit for the catalyst of your own salvation. That's why we have all these t-shirts at baptismals that say, I have decided, instead of t-shirts that say, God saved me. It is a radically different perspective to realize that God did something for you that you could not do for yourself. So the only one who has a truly free will is God. But we do have what theologians call free agency. I think it's a very helpful term. We are free to operate with our, within our nature. The man with a sinful nature is free to sin. The man with a righteous nature is free to obey Christ. But even in our free agency, and pay attention with this, even our free agency isn't truly free. It does not mean that we are free from the providence of God who works all things together. We have to understand that the very act of being a created being necessitates a state of dependence, of subordination, a predetermined purpose, which again is antithetical to the concept of freedom. As creatures, as creatures, we are by default restrained to a particular framework given to us by a creator. Okay, we do not have the ability. You, you must nod your head yes to this statement. We, we do not have the ability to act independently of any external authority or influence. You don't. Your whole life has been orchestrated in a way for you to make certain decisions. You are not, cannot, as a creature, ever be truly free. So the concept of having a free, uninfluenced, unimpacted, impartial, unconstrained will is truly a foolish, illogical, and unbiblical idea. Yes, we do have responsibility. Yes, God calls us to make decisions. Yes, God expects that we operate according to his will. And how the two intersect between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, it is one of three great mysteries of the scriptures. But the truth is, we certainly know that we are not free. We are made. We are dust that disobeys God. I think it was Steve Lawson that said, we must stop worshiping the pagan goddess of free will in the church. Charles Spurgeon said something along the lines, free will has sent many to hell, but not one soul to heaven. The idea of free will, we have to give up the fact that God violates our will because if he doesn't, we would never choose him. It's very important. Self-love is blinding. We like to believe that we can do it without God. But what makes the gospel so sweet is that God saved you from what you could not save yourself from. 
Would you appreciate if I gave you an example of two different saviors? One saved you from a sunburn because he woke you up in your backyard and you were on your back. And he says, hey, neighbor, you should wake up, flip over. Saved you from a sunburn. How much appreciation are you going to have? Hey, thank you for doing that. Now, if we look at the other Savior, the Savior that you're passed out in a burning building on the 50th story, unable to save yourself, completely knocked out. But someone comes in, grabs you without your permission, takes you out of that building, resuscitates you, and dies in the process. Which Savior are you going to appreciate more? Because if you view your salvation as an opportunity that was presented to you and a great business deal, Jesus did his part, I'll do mine, I'll say yes, I'll change my nature, I'll come and follow Jesus. Your appreciation for your salvation and for your Savior will be very low, which most Americans hold that view. But if you see that God saved you from something that you would have perished had he not intervened in the same way that Lazarus was raised from the dead without his permission. God comes and resurrects your souls without your permission. And not one person in here should be upset about that because God is restoring us to the only version that we are ever designed to be, which is humanity submitted to his will. The freest we can ever be is to be sovereignly restored to what we are designed to be, worshipers of God. Therefore, as humans, our highest liberty is actually slavery to Christ. Our highest liberty is actually slavery to Christ. You want to be the freest you can possibly be? Come to Christ. You want to be the freest you can possibly be? Submit to Christ. So again, Christians don't generally have a problem with God's sovereignty extending into world realities, into weather, into governments. We, we all love the God that controls the, the, the waters and controls the wind. We don't love the God that controls the tsunami that kills 35,000 people. And at the same time, looking at Jesus command the ocean and believe the two are not connected. But when it comes to a sovereignty that also reaches in deep into your soul and directs your life and directs your destiny and it directs your eternality, people have a problem with that because it threatens their autonomy. It threatens their autonomy. But to this, I would say, as a Christian, why would you not want God to have sovereign control over your life? Why would you not want God to have sovereign control of your life? Do you not pray the prayer as Christ prayed? Father, your will, not mine, be done. It makes no sense. Make it make sense. I want free will, but at the same time, I'm going to pray that not my will be done, but God's be done. It's a contradictory reality. Therefore, the sovereignty of God is not a doctrine to fear. It's a doctrine to embrace. It's a doctrine to explore. It's not a place of worry. It's a place of rest. You could know that all events in your lives have been orchestrated. Yes, is there still temptation? Yes, is there still a devil? Yes, is there still demonic realities? Yes, but do you remember that it was God who presented Job to, the, to Satan? 
It wasn't Job. It wasn't Satan. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Does God not have rule over the demonic? Does Jesus not say all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth? Do you not see that he is the ultimate supreme ruler of your life and that every possible element of your life has either been permitted or directed directly from God? Now, if you're not a Christian, that should scare you because God is just and God will uphold his standard of righteousness and you will be condemned. But if you're a believer resting in Christ, this is the greatest news that you can rest in the absolute sovereignty of God. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Do we really not want that God at the helm of every possible situation in our life? So as you can see, an intellectual, mental acceptance of the doctrine of sovereignty and providence, it's foundational. We can't even talk about the rest of Romans 8 and 9 without first yielding to the reality that we have a sovereign God who orchestrates every possible detail in our lives, orchestrating the realities that may seem bad for our good and for his glory. And so next week, next week, we'll actually get into the verse. And I'm going to break down how, how God works together all things for good. You can't even talk about how if you're rejecting what. We need to first yield that we have a God that can and does sovereignly work in this world. And then next week, we'll get through the rest of this verse. Now, I want to let you guys know, this passage of scripture is the diving board. It's the high dive of Romans. It is about to get so glorious over the next chapter and a half. Do everything in your life to be here for the next several weeks because you will get to see the absolute beauty and magnificence of the gospel over the next several weeks. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not sovereign. Lord, we thank you that we are not dictating and controlling our own destiny. Lord, we know if we could lose our salvation, we would. And Lord, we ask that you would bless us with a yielding heart, a humble heart, that we would take you at your word. Father, we pray that you would work the truth of the gospel in the hearts of every person in this room. And Lord, that we would revel in it, and that we would glorify you in it. Lord, that this week we would ponder and pray about it that we would think about it and, and shout in praise about the beauty of the gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us this week and in the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.